Dr. Anton Anvilov was born in Sverdlovsk, the Soviet Union, and he was raised in the Crimean Peninsula. He has a PhD and he has taught at various universities in the Crimea and in Russia. And he has been interested in the UFO issue since 1993 and has spoken to hundreds of witnesses in official circles in Russia about UFO crash retrieval operations and secret programs at reverse engineering of extraterrestrial spacecraft and has learned a lot about underground facilities in Russia and Russian and Soviet research into extraterrestrial life and technology. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, Hello. I want to welcome you, Dr. Anvilov, to Exopolitics Today. It's a great pleasure to communicate with you. Well, you have a very interesting background. Uh, so why don't you just uh, introduce yourself to people in terms of uh, your birth in Sverdlovsk, the Soviet Union, and, and how you ended up in the Crimean Peninsula and was raised there. Uh, while that was part of Ukraine and its transition into an independent state? Actually, I was born in the capital of Ural. You know what Ural is? Ural is a divide between European Russia and Asian Russia. And there's huge mountain ridge. It's very long. It stretches from North, Atlant uh, North Ocean and uh, to South, to Southern deserts. It's um, quite a long uh, area and territory is huge and the capital of Ural is the city of Sverdlovsk. That's where I was born in 1972 and the family of uh, Communist Party workers of the um, regional committee of the CPSU. And actually, that's huge industrial city I was born. It's the center of military industrial complex in mid-Russia. It has a lot of industrial uh, enterprises and developed science as well, and a lot of scientific research institutes there. And uh, when I was one year old, they just grabbed me and put me into the cradle and moved me to South. The Crimean Peninsula at that time it was um, most southern area of Ukraine, and Ukraine consisted of 25 regions, and it was just one of these regions. And then uh, 2014, Russia returned and seized it back. It was military operation, very scary, and after that we appeared in the middle of big international crisis. And so I suffered a lot myself and my family from all those events. It's now ongoing and it's unpredictable. In very unpredictable ways, development is um, very scary now. 
So, and I had big experience in UFO research, and not only in Russia, but in Ukraine as well. I spoke with many experts from ex-Soviet Union. I know prominent Soviet and Russian UFO researchers. And I, I'd like to stick my nose to the places I don't belong. <laughs> Well, I know you have Some a very guys interesting... Some don't like such guys like me, you know, because I'm very curious and I'm open-minded. I want to learn more every time and especially what is hidden because some researchers are so self-confident. They say sometimes, so oh, Anton, if this is true, I should know about this for sure because I'm so experienced. Oh my gosh. And when I start checking all these guys and information step by step and point by point, amazingly, sometimes revelations are flabbergasting, really. Yes. Well, uh, before we talk expect it's unexpectable completely it's amazing discoveries sometimes happen unpredictable because i was so naive before i am i'm still very skeptical i couldn't imagine to myself how is this possible at all that such amazing things can happen because well, let's first of all uh, talk yeah. about you know let's first of all just kind of talk more about your background because you have a very interesting background in addition to the UFO research that you know you were uh, you were working as a university professor in a number of uh, universities teaching business and economics so why don't you just kind of talk about your expertise because that obviously established credibility for a lot of people to come to talk to you because you know you were an expert in finance and so people trusted you so why don't you just explain your background and, and why people trusted you to divulge very sensitive information yes i have um, uh, more than 100 scientific publications in various uh, journals and scientific um, magazines and uh, references and i used to work on the leadership of several other phds and professors in several universities and also in colleges and uh, as far as i remember since 2003 that was my first experience in ukraine and crimea and also in other branches and several other cities, you know, because uh, I started expanding my abilities and capabilities and my knowledge and more and more, you, have, you are getting more experience when you study this areas a lot and not just economics. In uh, 2006, I have got my PhD degree from Crimean, um, agrarian technological university and it was very scary experience it was very amazing experience because i paid a lot of efforts for my dissertation it wasn't easy 
sometimes hard rendering. And I tried my best because I'm from such families that, you know, my mom was also PhD in philosophy. My grandpa, he was working with Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president himself in late 60s in Sverdlovsk because my grandpa was head of the culture department there. And Boris Yeltsin was the head of department of construction there in Sverdlovsk. And my grandma uh, was also working there. So that's very nice family. And then uh, 1973, we moved from there to Crimea because of the climate, you know, to south. It's rather harsh to live there because it's frosty and um, ecology is not so good there in Ural. In mid-Russia, it's separation between Siberia and Europe, right in the middle. That's where Ural is, and Sverdlovsk, my native city, is the capital of Ural. So, um, and all my next experience was in Crimea, and my scientific experience and background for many years. So it was very long, actually. So what happened in 1993 that got you interested in uh, doing UFO research in in Russia? Actually, um, it was earlier than that, because my first interest appeared in 1984, when I was 12 years old, and even in high school. And I broke one lesson because all class and our teacher as well, they were all listening to my lecture instead of her because it was so exciting experience. It was brand new information in the Soviet Union and it was restricted information in the Soviet Union because official censorship was canceled on this topic only in 1989. Before that year, it was all forbidden. All these publications couldn't happen because it was strict official censorship and secrecy on the level of state, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And after that, it was like snowfall. And, you know, like amazing wave of these publications, of these movies, films, and a lot of books and newspaper articles and a lot of witnesses. And sometimes in late 80s and early 90s, it was so popular in our country and in Ukraine and in Russia and all across the ex-Soviet Union and all Soviet republics. So I was part of this process because I was very interested and it was so grasping experience, you know, it's amazingly interesting, amazingly interesting because brand new information, forbidden fruit is always tasty, you know, that's why I was deeply engaged and I tried to do my best to learn as much as I could because I want to know more always. I'm a very curious person and that's why it all began and development of this started. That's the reason. 
Okay, I know in the United States, Kapustanya uh, is often regarded as uh, Russia's uh, Area 51, that that's, that's where they recovered the first extraterrestrial craft and studied them in underground uh, facilities. So, so what do you know about Kapustanya and it being the beginning of Soviet research into extraterrestrial spacecraft? Yes, first of all, um, people must understand that knowledge about this in the U.S. and in other countries is very limited and simple. Kapustinia was one of the first Soviet missile test ranges. But as about UFO crashes, no, guys, it wasn't the first place because the Soviet Union is was a huge country. It was just one-sixth part of the whole world. So uh, the first recoveries, as I know, they did happen earlier, much earlier, even in the 19th, 19th century, and uh, also after World War II, uh, we had recovery in Kiev, capital of Ukraine. It was 1947 or 46, when huge cylinder-shaped craft was dug out from under the ground, and they moved it to the area of Moscow, not Kapustin Yar at all. So we had a number of locations in Russia where this UFO research and R&D research and development was underway for years. These places are back basically near Moscow, uh, in Novosibirsk, big Siberian city, and uh, there's big research center, and also in several other locations, such as Ural and Chelyabinsk region later, and uh, several others, a lot of plants and uh, enterprises involved in this. Zhukovsky are based near Moscow. Uh, as about Kapustin here, it's um, greatly exaggerated, I must uh, emphasize, because you must not talk about Kapustin here so much. It's not such important place it is, as it is known for <clears throat> so many years and for public knowledge. It's, it's not correct vision. The correct vision is must deal with multiple places across Russia, Moscow region, Zhukovsky, Novosibirsk, and other locations, especially several locations around Moscow, because this is where um, the scientific potential is concentrated basically in the area of Moscow, because they have a lot of research institutes there, and Kapustinia is just test range when you test articles. And when you have something ready to test, you move it to such places as um, state test central range number four. Kapustinia tests them there. But as about deep scientific research, it must be concentrated in some areas where you have scientific potential. And these places are near Moscow and Novosibirsk and some others as well. And Kapustinir doesn't have such scientific um, research potential and, you know, a lot of uh, 
experts and doctors in different areas of science to study this deeply. So it's basically a test range. And there is also Achtubinskirk base, which is uh, one of the main test bases for all secret aircraft. And basically this is um, counterpart of Area 51. But when we talk about Area 51, we have always to remember that first of all, it deals with aircraft and uh, not with alien craft and alien bodies, but you must understand that all these things are deeply compartmentalized. So you have this here, you have that there. They are not in the same hangar at all. You can't keep everything in the same hangar. You always have to apply compartmentalization because this is the main rule of secrecy, not to keep everything in one hangar and to separate people, to separate staff, to separate research and to organize different projects, interacting in some areas, you know, and they have different ramifications uh, anyway, but everything is known only on top for very narrow circle of dedicated guys who have most limited access and most restricted access, you know, to all these things. And on top only, all others, they don't know much. So I must warn people, don't talk so much about Kapustin Yard. It's not the main site. Okay. All right. Well, then you have... Uh... You've said that uh, the, the Soviets found many ancient underground tunnels and caverns um, throughout their territory and that they repurposed these to build uh, their deep underground bases where they studied these classified projects involving UFOs and they took their retrieved spacecraft or uh, alien craft to these underground bases. So you, you want to talk a little bit about what it was that the Soviets found all over uh, Russia? Yes, sure. Uh, they took some areas, not all of them, because this network is really huge. And usually most of these tunnels are protected because they have their own masters and owners and they are in active use, some of them. But some of them are really abandoned. And there were ancients that look like polished glass because these tunnels are made by high temperature vehicles. They move like knife through, you know, uh, some easy substance. When you cut something into your kitchen, it's easy to cut some things, you know, and so easy. You can build these tunnels because the speed of these machines are usually from three to five kilometers per hour. And they deeply penetrate into the soil and into hard rock and with big speed. And all they leave are just these glassy surfaces. And they reflect everything around like real glass. And when you put electricity, they can even glow by greenish glow because that's amazing technology. It's very 
advanced and it is connected with high temperatures. This technology is very, very advanced. And if we compare it with our modern contemporary science, for example, we know about Los Alamos National Laboratory, they invented nuclear machines that can penetrate very fast into the ground and build these tunnels. And aliens also had such machines for very long time, for thousands of years. So we have this network because of this. It's very easy for them. It's not like we built our subways, you know, it's very diff different technology. It's very fast, three to five kilometers per hour, very fast. That's why it really exists. And I know some people, I spoke with people who saw these tunnels and even in Crimea, now Peninsula. And actually, they found several places in Russia, in the Urals, in Far East, in Siberia, where they can penetrate inside by trucks, by military trucks, they can move cargo, different lots, you know, equipment inside for dozens of kilometers and even for hundreds of kilometers. And the most amazing I learned just recently is about railway connections and railway network because, you know, Russia is a country of long railways. And they can build these railways, you know, these machines, they go straight forward and they have automatic loading, you know, rails. And they just can put them on the ground and move forward and again and again and again. So these machines were used to build this railway network inside these tunnels for many kilometers. And that's really amazing because it was done in top secrecy. And very few people know about these networks. And that's really amazing because during the last years, they are developing these networks more and more in different parts of Russia. And now they connect Ural middle of Russia with other regions. And that basically in 1991, that was the last year of the Soviet Union, the year of collapse, you know, it was calamity and total destruction to 15 republics. KGB generals decided to hide this more to prevent any publicity and possible dangers and possibility of any access from U.S. to these technologies hidden in Zhukovsky Air Base, southeast of Moscow. <clears throat> so they moved two alien disks from Zhukovsky Air Base to the base in Ural in the region of Chelyabinsk under Taganai National Park. And they have railway access from the south and automobile tunnels from north east, two tunnels actually from north east and one from south. And they meet under these mountain ridges. 
And that's really huge conflicts because humans didn't build it. They just found these tunnels and um, they're properly camouflaged and they have such entrances in many places. For example, if UFO crash happens, they can covertly transport the swinical covered by tar, by special foil. Actually, they cover at least by two protective screens. First is special metallic foil, which is against all electromagnetic emissions. And it's like absorbing all EMI emissions. And the last is TARP, not just TARP. And so they properly camouflage this load. They make different shape. For example, if you transport disc-shaped craft, you must construct um, disguise. You know this small, like small screen, because they distort the image of the lot to full. You know, reconnaissance satellites and, you know, technical means of set, uh, reconnaissance uh, from U.S. and other countries. And usually they do this during nights and they transport this to remote locations where they have these entrances underground. And one team transports this and this team doesn't know anymore. They just do what they are told, the others, and they leave. You are dismissed, dismissed guys. Other guys come and take this lot. And now they are in, in this play and they move this to the proper location because one team doesn't know what the other team involved in, you know. That's compartmentalization. And they move this to this entrance at night usually, and they can put it on the ground. And everything is hush-hush. And these tunnels are really huge, some of them, because some of them are dozens of meters in diameter. Just imagine such huge diameters. You can easily move recovered craft, disc-shaped or you know cylinder-shaped, all along these tunnels for dozens of miles. It's unimaginable. When I learned about this, I told to myself, oh my gosh, oh my God, how they're smart guys, you know? Because when you have these networks underground, you can easily master this. You can easily organize this cover-up very effectively. And by the way, the depth of this complex is about one kilometer deep. You know, it's very deep because it's protective, protected from uh, satellites because now modern satellites, they can scan underground hundreds of meters, you know, and they can detect underground structures. That's why these most sensitive complexes are camouflaged and hidden very well. You can detect them by electromagnetic emissions. You can detect them by radar scans. They're very deep. So now, that's how they do this. Now, now you mentioned that um, around the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that um, 
the KGB started to take control of these secrets. But but on the other hand, you mentioned that Boris Yeltsin, President Boris Yeltsin, that this was a kind of golden age for openness into uh, researchers like yourself into uh, UFOs in the Soviet Union and Russia. So can you explain what the years were like during uh, Boris Yeltsin's presidency? First, you must understand that KGB was always in control, always, since the very beginning of this organization, KGB. And Boris Yeltsin was just the first and last, first and last, only one democratic president of Russia since 1991. And they were hiding this even from him. He wasn't well aware of all these guys. He wasn't in the loop. Don't, please don't have these illusions about him. I know this guy, he was very stubborn and uh, active and he had a lot of, you know, uh, power sometimes, but um, and he wasn't in the loop. Don't have illusions. I know some guys uh, behind him, like General Colonel Grushko, like General Colonel Agave, and um, General Colonel Grigoryenko. They were all KGB guys and during the last years of the Soviet Union. But usually such information is properly hidden even from top elected officials. Please don't have any illusions about Boris Yeltsin. And uh, just 10 years, it was open policy in Russia till 1999. And then everything was again hush-hush when Putin came because Putin took everything under his control and Boris Yeltsin wasn't much in the loop because there were other guys responsible for this cover-up. And during Boris Yeltsin's times, it was already established well-working system of this international cover-up. And by the way, Russia was actively engaged in international policy and cooperation with, um, with Western countries about hiding all of this. Sometimes crashes did happen in Russia. Teams from Britain or US took part. Uh, they were involved in these activities and recovery operations. It wasn't that simple. But after the year 2000, all of this stopped and uh, Russia took control. And actually, they have now Russian SSP, secret space program. It wasn't that limited before during Yeltsin's times, because during his years, the policy was more open and more open-minded. Um, it's... The difference is great. If you compare with the present situation, it's very different. Well, it's that's fascinating because that means that during the 1990s, uh, you, you had the two most powerful countries in the world, the Soviet uh, Russia or the Russian Federation uh, and, and, and the United States. The United States was he headed by President Clinton and he was kept out of the loop of the UFO issue by the CIA. And in sure. Russia... Uh, President Yeltsin was kept out of the 
out of the loop on the UFO issue by the successor to the KGB, which was the FSB. I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of fascinating to think about that. Absolutely. It's like, you know, twin brothers, Clinton and Yeltsin, they were both out of the loop, kept by these guardians, guardians of those secrets. And actually, that's international cover-up. Don't think it's only Russian cover-up. It was, and it is still international because you can't cope in one country. It's too large. And I must emphasize it, even in late 50s, during Khrushchev's times, they already had cooperation with West, with NATO countries. That's amazing because it was Cold War, it was Soviet Union, it was Nikita Khrushchev, the first Soviet leader after Stalin. And he was more open to this. And they cooperated with West because since 1955, after meeting in Geneva, in Switzerland, they had negotiations there, Soviet Union, Britain, France, and US. And part of these negotiations was dedicated to this issue, UFO topic, an international cover-up. 1955. That was very important date for international cover-up with the participation of USSR as well in this um, big real conspiracy. So this this cover-up, uh, this international cover-up, seemed to focus on the the lead intelligence agencies in both countries or in, in all countries. So in the US, uh, it was the CIA that took the lead in the UFO cover-up. In the Soviet Union, it was the uh, KGB. And and now, well, in, the, in 1991, I guess the KGB was dissolved and absorbed into the FSB. So can you just explain uh, the, the FSB uh, being the successor to the KGB and how much power it has today over the secrecy of, of the uh, UFO issue in Russia? Okay, first of all, FSB is not that powerful as KGB was, because KGB was much more powerful. Every Soviet citizen was very afraid of KGB. The very word was very scary. If you say, okay, oh, KGB, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we always stop talking, hush hush, you know, fear. People were very scared by KGB, and KGB was very powerful. FSB is not that powerful, but this structure is not the only Soviet structure involved in this. There is also, and there was also, less known structure called GRU, which was Soviet counterpart of DIA, Defense Intelligence Department and Pentagon. That's military intelligence and Soviet military intelligence, GRU, was involved in UFO research since 1952. 
it's very amazing information people don't know because there's documentation in some pretty solid books like you know Timothy Good wrote his research about these famous British UFO researchers researcher and some other guys so <clears throat> you must bear in your mind that that's not that simple different structures were involved in the U.S. as well, not only just CIA. Don't forget about NSA and other three-letter agencies because NSA, you know, it's like never say anything. It's very secret organization established in 1952 and dedicated also in uh, you know, spy activities and interception of communications, and not only foreign communications, but alien communications as well, because aliens also have their communication systems, and these systems can be intercepted. And they have a lot of special equipment to intercept their channels of communication. And that's what happens. And usually these organizations are involved in this. So it's not that simple. The most important is that KGB had special department inside. And it was very restricted, extremely secret, and even top KGB officers were completely unaware of the very existence of this most secretive department of this organization, KGB. And um, I know some people who used to work in this department, and it's totally top secret, classified even today. And after the um, KGB was disbanded in 1991, it was transition period and some secrets leaked out, but anyway, very quickly it was reorganized and FSB appeared and you can find all this history in the internet and I did my research and uh, that's not that simple. So FSB now also has this department and they continue their research in this area. And also GRU had its own department. It was called Lotus Department in 60s. Very few people know this name. It's like MJ, MJ-12 in Russia, Lotus Group. You know, this flower, Lotus. Well, it's, it yes. seems it seems yes. like uh, Russia's uh, or the Soviet Union's KGB had a similar structure to the CIA because in the in the in the United States the CIA it was the counterintelligence division that was headed by James Jesus Angleton that was in charge of the classified UFO files so it wasn't all of the CIA that were read in that knew about it, it was just this specific uh, James Jesus Angleton he was the one in charge of the secrets so it was that and that was the most powerful part of the CIA from from the 1950s up until the 1970s. So it sounds like the KGB had a very similar structure. One specialized unit had control and, and others within the KGB wouldn't know about it. And if they did, they could get into trouble. You must understand one important thing. 
you can't compare CIA and KGB because KGB was much more powerful with much more ramifications all across the Soviet Union. KGB had its department in every city, in every region, in every enterprise. Every foreign national arriving to the Soviet Union was under constant surveillance by KGB officers 24-7. That's amazing. It was huge and powerful organization, KGB. CIA is different. When you speak about foreign intelligence, it was just so-called first main department or PGU, um, PGU of KGB. And this was just only department for foreign intelligence. And GRU also had foreign intelligence and specifically targeted for foreign countries. And this secret services, KGB and GRU, they had competition. These structures inside and outside the Soviet Union were in constant, you know, like struggle and competition between each other. And it wasn't that peaceful because you have always this um, struggles between secret services, you know, it's, that's not easy. Yeah. And KGB well, like was much, much more powerful. And you can't imagine how powerful it was. That's right. unimaginable. Yeah, that the KGB... It was in the close countries like Soviet Union. This was the country of total secrecy everywhere. Just tiny details were secret. Every enterprise, almost every, was involved in military-industrial complex. Amazing secrets on every corner. Here is secret, there is secret, and there is top secret. And everywhere. And um, several levels of secrecy exists in, existed in the Soviet Union. It's not like in the US. The, the, the systems of secrecy are quite different. Soviet system was um, for special access and uh, secret, and then top secret, and even higher was top secret of special access or special folder. That was the highest level of secrecy. But even some top position, high rank members of the political bureau of the Communist Party, of the USSR, they were not aware of all these prog programs. Only few guys were in the loop, like Yuri Andropov, the chairman of KGB, and like Dmitry Ustinov, he was minister of defense of the Soviet Union for many times during Brezhnev administration, and very few other guys. All the rest were out of the loop, out. Even top rank political bureau of the Communist Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, because they didn't have any need to know. You must have need to know. And they didn't. But Andropov was in the loop. Yuri Vladimirovich Andropov, he was very famous guy and intelligent and wise. He was in the loop. Yes.
and few of other guys. But even generals, even general colonels of KGB, many of them, they didn't have any need to know because of huge terrible secrecy. And this secrecy exists even today. It's still top secret. They're not going to, cla to declassify anything, anything. And this can exist forever, forever. So, can, can you just explain, I mean, how even today um, uh, there's a lot of people, former servicemen in, in Russia that are too frightened to talk because of intimidation and of losing their military pensions. This secrecy system under the Putin administration continues those former KGB policies of secrecy. Exactly. And for example, I was talking with one guy for many years. He just told me, Anton, I can tell you so much, so much. I can tell you unimaginable things, you know. You can't even imagine what I can tell you. But I'm scared, man. He told me, direct quote, I want to leave, end quote. I want to leave, he told me, you know. He is scared for his life, not only just to lose his pension, because, you know, sometimes they erase memories. They use some chemicals. They put influence on your brain, you know. These guys are smart. You sign non-disclosure agreement for many years that you can talk about this anywhere, anyway. No way, you know, not only just signing papers, they have very strict control. And for example, this main base that now exists, uh, exists in Ural Mountains on the Taganai National Park. This base is much cooler, it's much more cool than S4 in Nevada or, you know, some other facilities even in the U.S. because it, because it has so strict security systems and so strict access and especially some brand new and highly sophisticated security systems, unimaginable, like, you know, brain waves, you know, uh, mentality control when you start approaching some, you know, gates, some entrances properly hidden, you start experiencing experiencing unexplainable fear. You start trembling from fear. Oh my gosh, what happens with me? And you just move away from these places. You know, it's mental control. And they also use, you know, extra sensors, you know, some specially trained guys who know these mental abilities and capabilities. They can influence other people and other intelligences by this mental control. They are clear ones. They have, you know, advanced mental abilities. They also use these guys for very long periods of time. And many people are very scared, very scared. <clears throat> Even in 50s, in 60s, in the previous century, they don't talk because they are so terrorized by this Soviet system of total overwhelming secrecy everywhere. 
and they are trained like subconscious trained, you know, they, inside their brains they have something very different, unlike other people. And I know some of these guys, uh, especially those who were in scientific research institutes, for example, in Leningrad since 1965, uh, studying insectoid creatures discovered on Kola Peninsula. They don't talk, oh my gosh, because one member of their team, Dr. Voskresenska, Anna Kapitolina, she was killed. She was brutally killed because KGB organized car crash and they killed her and they killed her sister together with her. It was hush-hush like, you know, you're driving your car and then you have big truck nearby with a lot of, you know, wood and then suddenly it collapses upon the roof and you are dead. Both well, of them. Um, yeah, one with all the guys were so scared they don't talk till today, you know. Well, let's talk about that incident you described, uh, the, the, the Kola uh, Peninsula and, and these uh, insectoid extraterrestrials <clears throat> that um, there was a UFO crash in the Kola Peninsula in 1965. So, yeah, just you know, just explain <laughs> what, what what happened exactly. How did the Soviets or the KGB find these extraterrestrials there, and how and what did they do? First of all, as far as I know, these insectoid creatures they are not extraterrestrials. They are intraterrestrials. They are representatives of underground civilization and very ancient race of insectoid masters. And they have their slaves and they have this symbiont culture. It's very ancient. It's millennia <clears throat> they exist under the surface of our planet for millions of years. It's unimaginable. And specifically in the area of Kola Peninsula, they have underground mine. They have this deep underground complex where they extract rare earth elements and then they move them, <clears throat> these elements upwards to hovering objects, spacecraft, and they process them and they use these elements in the industry. So this area, Kola Peninsula and Hibini Mountains, this is very specific area on planet Earth because it has very large concentration of this rare air, uh, Earth elements, you know. They're very specific and they extract them there. And in 1965, there was accident when several workers stumbled upon these creatures on the ground and they captured them uh, because alarm system was activated of this complex when this underground where this underground alien complex intersects with human mind positioned above it and when miners started digging deeply they activated the sensors positioned along this tunnel tunnels and these creatures reacted like security guys, and they got upwards, and at this very moment, miners exploded, high explosives. 
And after this, bam, this happened. And these creatures were blinded because bright light penetrated inside and they can't see uh, in open, you know, for their eyes are not uh, adjusted to bright light, bright sunlight. And that's why they were blinded and they were deaf and they were in shock after this explosion. And that's why several of them were captured. And KGB arrived, KGB officers, they captured them in this state and they moved several of them, dead ones and also some were alive, to the special hassle organized underground laboratory in Severomorsk in underground tunnels converted from naval depot, uh, tunnels specifically for you know, torpedoes, uh, Navy ammunition and Navy bombs, and they have this all this stuff in Severomorsk, in Guba, Kolna. That's the name of location, underground tunnels there in rocks near the shore and near the bay, Kola Bay on Kola Peninsula. That's the location where the first Soviet laboratory since 1965 was organized to study these creatures. And these creatures were really amazing. Two and a half meters tall, you know, insectoids, very amazing, with antennas, you know, very specific biology. And that was really amazing for them, and that was very scary. And if you look at the map, you can also find the city of Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. It's nearby to the south. Uh, organized scientific team in Leningrad from the Institute of Evolutionary Physiology and Biochemistry of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR. And this team was moved there to Severomorsk to study these creatures. And Dr. Voskresenska was involved, Anna Kapitonovna, and Dr. Svidersky, Vladimir Leonidovich, who later became uh, the head of this institute in Leningrad, the main institute involved in this study, insectoids. And Dr. Swiderski, he was the main Soviet expert in insectoids. And he became the director of this institute since 1981. Very prominent guy. I used to study his publications. and. In, even in open sources, you can find that indeed he was very smart guy about these creatures, insectoids. Why? He became director. So usually director of some institute is only appointed if he is leader of this basic scientific guideline of this basic, you know, research if you have different areas of research but one of them is the main one and the leader of this becomes the director that's what exactly what happened in 1981 he became the director of the institute and he well, was no, awarded just, by uh, state awards why for what just, i just for wanted to ask you know about those insectoids that you said you know those um uh, those praying mantis-looking insectoids, uh, that they're intraterrestrials, they're from the inner Earth. Now, a lot of people have reported seeing 
during abduction experiences that these praying mantis are there. So, so does that mean that these inner earth civilization of praying mantis are involved in the abduction of surface humans? Exactly for millennia and they are not only intraterrestrial because they went to space long before us long before us they have very extensive infrastructure on our moon and inside our moon on mars as well on different satellites no and at least in 12 planetary bodies of our solar system and beyond, because they are called ancients. Because when you hear the word ancient aliens, that's, they are. You have to think about them, insectoids, because they are ancients. They ex existed on our planet long before all other creatures and reptiles appeared much later. Humanoids appeared much, much later. And these creatures are the most ancient ones. When they are very developed, they are very smart. They have magnetic sensors inside their brain. They can see well because they are a uh, little bit blind like me <laughs> but they have this magnetic sensors their brain is much bigger than human brain much bigger they are much smarter they have all extrasensory abilities every human being is just like an open book for them you can't imagine how smart they are they can see you the long distance, they can scan you. They can see what's inside. Like, you know, 3D tomography, you know, these big scanners and huge hospitals and brand new hospitals, they always use this specific rotating scanners, magnetic with magnetic sensors. And that's what they have in their brains. That's unimaginable. When Soviet scientists uh, studied them for years, 20 years of research from 1965 till uh, 1985 and uh, two more years, 86, 87, unimaginable how they studied them and what they learned for 20 years of this research. We have 27 pages of this document, very scientific, very professional, dedicated exactly to this research. Every specialist, every PhD in biology who can look at this, say, they say, these guys, oh my gosh, oh my God, where did it? taken this? Where did you find this? Because that's unimaginable how professional that is. And, you know, these guys are very smart and very ancient. And they are apparently the very first intelligent creatures on this very planet Earth. And these ancients, they first scan space by their magnetic sensoring organs and then they move there they can teleport even if you look at just little tiny ants and um, termitoids you can find that their mothers of this 
é o social structure, which means real social structure of their society, they can teleport inside their cameras because they have natural ability for teleportation. Unimaginable. They can fly, they can levitate in special fiery spheres You know, they create by their you know, advanced mental and um, energy capabilities and telepathic capabilities, is spheres around them, teleportation, levitation, scanning, reading your thoughts, and creating illusions for any human being. Because as I said, every human being is so simple comparing with them. They can create any illusion, just any. They use your you know, mental images inside your brain and they are just recreating these images for something you imagine or unimaginable. They, they put you into illusion like in Matrix. Everybody knows this famous movie Matrix, you know. And that's how it happens in reality. They can create this Matrix unimaginable, very advanced artificial reality inside your brain. And you see, oh my gosh, I see reptiles. Oh, I see Nordics. Oh, I see Grace. Or I see my grandma or my grandpa. Any illusion. And that's how they work. They can, the shapeshifters, they are unimaginable shapeshifters and very smart creatures and very ancient. We can't compare with such smart creatures. Trust me, I know what I'm saying about. They are unimaginably smart. They are mm -hmm. masters of illusion. They, they are like puppet masters. And all of us are just uh, you know, so naive puppets. And we all are, according to this alien agenda, and they are you know, key players. Key players, some people in Majestic are in the loop indeed. Just yesterday, I uh, saw an unimaginable, amazing new Majestic document about this, and they say, oh, that's real. That's underground, ultra-terrestrial civilization living here, from here, for millennia, from planet Earth. And they are masters, and they have grace. Grace are under them because they genetically manipulate other creatures, hominids, and they started these manipulations long ago with our ancestors on this planet. And like domestication, like we domestify dogs or horses and we use them in our you know, enterprises and business and economy, they also do this for millennia. And they started using these hominid creatures long ago before us, our ancestors, like, you know, these big hairy tall guys like Sasquatch. You know what Sasquatch is? These guys, sir, domesticated these artificial products of this creation. And they have insectoid masters. They all have their masters. Usually they don't talk much about this, but anyway, they have them. And they also have a position long ago against this, you know, hive 
That's huge high mentality. This structure is huge because it's called L social structure. L social, from the scientific point of view, means really social. It's where, unlike we have in our human society, they are even more social than us humans. That's unimaginable how they are structured, how they are organized, because their level of organization is much smarter than we have. And you must understand because these you know, notions and you know, are brand new for some guys in ufology. But some people know this for dozens of years because they were also captured in the US, not only in the Soviet Union. And I know at least two cases in the USSR, first in 1965, and the other one is in 1987, when these insectoid creatures were captured in the USSR and also started in Urjar laboratory in Kazakhstan in Semipolatinsk region. They had this big underground multi-level laboratory uh, closed in 1987 when they kept these insectoids and also humanoids or anthropoids there as well in underground levels. Now, you mentioned the Majestic 12 group. Now, mo most people in the United States think of Majestic 12 as a US-based organization. So did the Russians or the Soviet Union have their own Majestic uh, organization to handle these issues? Or, or is there an international Majestic organization? All the swearance you told about are true. The first was GRU since 1952. In the Soviet Union, this was the first organization, GRU, that's Soviet military intelligence. Then KGB was also involved much later than GRU. And uh, the Soviet counterpart of this is the special department inside KGB, very narrow circle of people. And the very fact of the, its existence is not known for many guys, even top position officers in KGB, they don't know about its very fact of existence. As well, alongside with all this, MJ-12 was later transformed because the original name of MJ-12 was compromised and they had other names, you know, some people say Scion Group and others, different names. And as far as I know, they had extensive cooperation, even in Soviet times with the USSR. Because when Khrushchev became Soviet leader after Stalin's death in March of 1953, Nikita Khrushchev became Soviet leader, and he was... Well, fitting guy for these guys that could deal with him much more easily than with Stalin, because Stalin wasn't that negotiable with this. And Nikita Khrushchev had much better approaches, you know. He and his guys, Khrushchev's guys, negotiated since 1955 with Majestic 12.
in Geneva, in Switzerland. And that was the first place where they had negotiations. And I know some guys that were involved in this. And later, when tragedy happened in Northern Europe in 1959, when the group of tourists were mysteriously killed, and as appeared, they were killed by aliens because there was, you know, like surgery on their bodies, mutilations, not just animal mutilations happened, but also human mutilations happened as well. And that was one of the amazing cases of human mutilations in uh, the Soviet Union. And this information was transferred to NATO during Khrushchev's times, so they had exchange of information between USSR and USA even in the 50s. And um, as far as I know, in 1963, when there was treaty to ban nuclear atmospheric tests in September of that year, 1963, they had a special agreement with the USSR with uh, participation of India uh, and then guys were also negotiating like mediators between USSR and the US. And they also had these agreements and uh, they have, and they had much bigger structures than MJ-12 uh, majority committee. And this committee of majority included also Soviet representatives as well not just MJ-12, then they also have MHI command in the U.S., specific structure, and they have many levels of secrecy and several different organizations strictly compartmentalized, and that's not that simple, these structures. And uh, specifically, since 1972, that was another stage of these uh, interactions and negotiations and exchanges and cooperation between Soviet Union and US because Henry Kissinger visited USSR together with Richard Milhouse Nixon, US president in 1972. And as official guys, that was remarkable visit to Moscow and other locations in the Soviet Union during Brezhnev times, they signed several agreements between USSR and US, and specifically Henry Kissinger was shown uh, the captured UFO that they kept in underground laboratory in Zhukovsky field. They brought him there in secrecy. And they took them, this American guys, underground by elevator, and they accompanied them into this underground laboratory in Zhukovsky Air Base, southeast of Moscow, and they just showed them, look, this is alien discs that we captured. And also Fidel Castro, the Cuban leader, was also shown this disc, and alien bodies kept there in refrigerators, uh, special containers there as well in 1972 in this underground lab. And that was exact year, 1972, when they signed also different agreements about cooperation in space, about keeping this information hush-hush. And the very amazing fact is that they had a special treaty that 
USSR will be silent about American cases, crash cases. We will never tell this to the world. And the US said, okay, we will also keep silence about your crash recovery cases as well. So this is real international conspiracy of silence that was organized between USA and USSR even since 50s, 60s, and especially since 1972. When Henry Kissinger got direct access, Henry Kissinger is and was at those times one of the key players. He was very well in the loop. He is very smart. He knows a heck of a lot about all of this, you know, programs and covered contacts. And he is one of the best friends of Putin and of Brezhnev also. He visited Soviet Union for many times. He was and is one of the main key players in negotiations about the sale and exit politics between USA and USSR. Okay, I, I just wanted I just wanted to kind of like interrupt you there because Henry Kissinger is still very active in international politics yeah, and people yeah, seeing him traveling saying, around yeah. the world, having yeah, meetings. But he different. was but even more what you're saying, those times when he was younger. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, so, so really what you're saying is that Kissinger isn't just being this international diplomat. He is actually, go, actually going around because he's the lead man for this international cooperation in keeping the secrecy system going concerning extraterrestrial life. And these um, yes, exactly. And not program. just extraterrestrial, but also intraterrestrial. Don't forget about intraterrestrial because... Always people speak about extra, extra, you know. Don't think not about just uh, only about extra. Think about intra. Look first under your feet first, you know. Because first look closer. They're very smart, these guys. They want you to think they're from sometimes from very distant planets. They can tell you, oh, we're from here, we're from there. Just to cover the fact that they are from here because they don't want you guys to know their true locations because they're very smart. They can deceive people a lot. And that's the usual practice to cover this up with extraterrestrial information, intraterrestrial activities of this huge civilization. And they have a lot of locations on our planet and a lot of habitats and a lot of this intraterrestrial cultures, not only insectoid cultures, but also anthropoid cultures and a lot of humanoid cultures live underground on our very own planet. Well, I want to now shift to Crimea. I mean, you were you spent many years or decades in Crimea, and my Crimea, whole life. Big, and Crimea is a big uh, area of interest today because of the conflict. Now, you say, oh, sorry, uh, there's a lot of people that say that there are underground bases that were found in Crimea, and some people actually describe pyramids found in Crimea. So can you tell us about you know, what was found underground in Crimea and these pyramids there in Crimea? Yes, I was there myself. I spoke with these guys who claimed about this discovery. 
And actually, we got some disappointment about this because they excavated big hole underground near the city of Sevastopol. And unfortunately, we didn't find the structure that was claimed before by these guys. And uh, we found quite different structures there near Sevastopol, this big city in south western corner of Crimea. However, there are other locations in Crimea that are suspected to contain these pyramids under the ground, because you must understand that you can't find them on surface, not like on Giza Plata in, e Plata in Egypt, you know, that's quite different. And when they draw this, you know, line with seven pyramids in a row, that's not quite correct because they're scattered along the West Territory of Crimea in different parts, and especially uh, near Bakhtisarai, near Chitterdak, and near Yalta, and different other locations of Crimea. I was there myself in, myself in quite different locations. And uh, to excavate them, you have to invest a lot of money, a lot of efforts, and you know, that's, that's not that easy. However, some mountains there are really suspicious. They have geometrical structures. They are like, you know, streamlines. They have this um, even edges. And um, it's highly suspected that artificial underground structures do really exist, and not just only pyramids. They have extremely advanced, ancient, and long network of underground tunnels under the Crimea. And I was in many of these locations myself, and I sensed these vibrations from underground, because when a surface is trembling under your feet, that's really amazing, scary experience, and I experienced that myself for several times, you know. And these tunnels and these big cavities underground they really do exist in Crimea in many locations because this network is really huge. They have at least two big cavities. These cavities are approximately two to three kilometers long, like big ovals with, you know, this uh, hemispheric roofs under them. And they're connected by, you know, West spider-like network of these tunnels all across Crimea to, to different locations. Some tunnels go to Rostov and Don under the Sea of Azov. Some tunnels go under the Black Sea. Some tunnels go to Ukraine from Crimea. And by the way, there's tunnel connecting Crimea and Russia because if to use this tunnel, they shouldn't build Crimean bridge under, you know, above surface because they have this underground tunnel below surface. But this fact is hidden from the public. And these tunnels are very ancient and some of them are used. And the military, uh, <clears throat> you know, KGB knew about this, FSB know about these tunnels. And mm, this network is really amazing. And also, they have 
and the water passages because some UFOs can dive underwater into the Black Sea and use some caverns and cave entrances under Crimean Peninsula. We have places here where um, huge humanoid creatures were observed. They are three to four meters tall, quite big guys, amazing how tall they are. These guys are also representatives of this underground civilization because they dwell here for so long time, the underground dwellers, ultra-terrestrials, and this Civilization is highly developed there, and not only in Crimea, Lake Baikal as well in Russia have these guys, you know, humanoids, very tall, and they use advanced technologies and UFOs are observed every time, every year, how they dive in the water, how they fly. I spoke with people who saw, you know, opening rocks, just Amazing when you see rocks open and this UFOs fly into the mountain and then these doors are closing back and all you see just surface of the rock remaining, you know, and no traces of these hidden passages and entrances under the ground. And some places are really amazing because I had some really scary experiences there once upon a time. For example, we have such mountain as Boyka Mountain, and I was there in winter, and I'm standing near the foot of this mountain, and I hear this sound like, you know, mix of waterfall with turbo engine of some aircraft and also if you mix the sounds with the sound of train, three sounds mixed together. Very scary. And it was like, you know, like a Langelier movie, scary, you know, Stephen King horror, because that's very scary. The, the sound from under the ground, this vibration. And I know people who were there on top of the mountain, on March 8th and early 2000s, this year's time frame. And they just positioned themselves on the ground, just tourists, you know, and when they were beginning to sleep, they couldn't sleep because of these sounds from under the ground. Very irritating, very scary, and penetrating all your bodies, these vibrations from under the ground. Very technical. Not earthquake. Nothing natural. Specifically, technical sounds. Absolutely artificial from this underground equipment and the Crimean Peninsula. And once upon a time, we also made an experiment uh, about vibrations. We just put a glass of water, waited until it will become very calm, and then waited what will happen next. And to our utmost amazement, and to my utmost amazement, I saw the circle, sounds of water, because of this underground vibration under our feet, like 
We had some train on the ground passing under us, so, you know, some UFO craft moving inside these tunnels right under our feet. And that was a really amazing experience. I had myself there. And a lot of people experience this. And even in the capital of Crimea, even in Simferopol, once upon a time, when I was returning from my institute, I just stood uh, uh, on the street, open street, big traffic, a lot of cars, and suddenly I start feeling this vibration. Everything is trembling. Everything is vibrating under me. And all this, you know, metallic parts, all the street, all cars on the street. Dun, 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 dun. Like, you know, that wasn't earthquake. No way. Earthquakes don't happen like that. Earthquakes usually have horizontal or vertical movements, you know, but not this constant, regular, purely technical vibration. And that was amazing for me. Wow. Well, you know, I, I, I just wanted... I just wanted to finish up with one last question because uh, you know we're we're kind of like towards the end of of the of this first interview. Um, we we'll, we'll, definitely have to have you back to do a, a follow up interview because there's so much more to cover. But I just wanted to ask you right right now in the United States uh, there are congressional hearings. There's legislation to uh, reveal. Uh, the truth about uh, these uh, UFO reverse engineering projects. Have you heard anything about Russia doing something similar? Is, is Putin going to do a similar initiative or is he just going to let the United States take the lead? No, Putin will cover up everything and everywhere and forever. Russia is not open country anymore, you know, because... I'm very skeptical about this new initiative of U.S. Congress. Don't be so naive, guys. Don't be so naive, because these people, they're beyond official structures. They are very secretive, compartmentalized, very powerful. And I have substantial doubts as US, that U.S. Congress can do anything about this. Of course, I have some positive hopes about this, but I'm highly skeptical about any you know, success in this. And Congress is just you know public organization. That's not for public knowledge. Forget it. And especially now in Russia. Russia is now like the Soviet Union, back, you know. Terrible times returned. Forget about open policy in Russia, forget it. It's no way, you, only if something changes there, and that's highly unlikely now. Don't have any hope, just forget about any hopes about Russia and US was and still is much more democratic in this area, much more. Well, you know, the number of leaks is much more in the U.S. and in Russia. It's much more open. Even with all of this secrecy in the U.S., even all of these people and all the, you know, like Humpty Dumpty, <laughs> all the king's horses and all the king's men, much more open in the U.S., you know, than in Russia. That's very different. 
Well, I know there's a there's a lot more material that uh, we need to cover that that you are very familiar with all these rever- all of these uh, UFO crashes in in Russia and these uh, reverse engineering programs. We have to have you come back on a follow up interview. So for now, I want to th- thank you very much, Dr. Anton Anpolov, for uh, your expertise and sharing your your knowledge of the history of these UFO programs in the Soviet Union and Russia. Okay, you're welcome. And I have huge list of these incidents. Very big list. Well, we'll be back and we'll, we'll, we'll continue these uh, interviews. Thank you. Thank you. I highly appreciate your attention. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.